Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Dan Q. Makalua. The Man Team. Mega Bears Fan. A composite show, archive segments from previous episodes that got cut due to time. Episode 313 with Dan Q, Nakalua, Mega Bears fan, Canis Albinus, and Hussein. There was apparently, I didn't get this, a civilization survey in someone's email, and apparently other people got the survey as well. It's a long survey. He says, I received the civilization survey in my email today. What do you think of it? I thought the questions were very good and humble. Personally, I have not played much Civ since Rise and Fall came out, and I have been suffering from game abandonment. So while filling out the survey, I abandon it too for now. Yeah, he went back and changed his opening post because he assumed that everybody received this through whatever means. And saw a bunch of people were like, I have no idea what you're talking about. He goes, oh, I'm sorry. So here's what it was that I was asked. <laughs> he said it came with the civilization at newsletter.2k.com email. He said it came to the email that I use with Steam, but the source of this is likely from my 2K login, that My2K thing. So maybe they sent it to My2K users. I don't use that, and I didn't receive the survey, so maybe that has something to do with it. Okay. Yeah, same here. These questions are generally about quality of life, what systems do you like, what systems do you not like. Some of them were about what civilization games you have played and which of the civilizations have been your favorites. What systems do you like? What systems do you not like? Do you recommend the game? How do you rate certain parts of the game? And what are your thoughts about DLC and expansions and customization? That's generally what the idea is. One of the things I went through last night, and I I tried answering these questions, and one of the things that I struggled with was there are a lot of these systems that I like the idea or the concept behind them, but I don't particularly care for the actual implementation so it's like i'm hesitant to say that yes i like this feature it's my favorite feature in the game because i acknowledge that there's a lot of room for improving it still and i don't want them to get the impression that i'm saying that it's perfect as is don't change it this should be in every civilization game moving forward exactly as it is now because that is absolutely not the case And I hear you, Jason. I had the same thought. So when it says, please rate the following features in the game, I base it on what it is currently right now. And that resulted in lower numbers because like you, I really like the concept, but not so much the implementation. And so I interpreted it that way so that like you, when I'm giving those numbers, I didn't want to rate them really high because I like the concept. And then they also think that, oh, they like the concept and therefore they like the implementation. So I answered it based on the implementation and the hopes that they would realize whether or not I like the concept, this needs some work. Right. And there's also the idea of maybe they're setting this out because they're working on another expansion pack or something like that. And they want to know which features players want to tweak or which features players want to expand. And I don't want to give them the impression that I don't want to see the features that I like not be expanded True. in an expansion. I'd like to see those improved in an expansion as well, even if you're improving the weaker features or adding new features. But it seems pretty stacked on what they want to do, because there are still plenty of things that are part of the game that was not listed. 
However, there are a few things that I do like, and I don't think there's much that I would change. For example, the policy cards, except for the one, and since Phil isn't here, I would definitely want to, because I know that he's expressed this quite a lot, how certain policy cards should really, especially the adjacency ones, give the amount you would get from the card rather than just say what the card is. Everything can be adjusted, but there's a difference between saying I like it and saying, yeah, that it's still not quite perfect. This survey looks like it's something that's going directly to the developers, the purposes of finding out how to make the game better. And in that sense, it's it's a pretty good survey, I think. Well, except for the part that they clearly don't plan to update the UI, but okay. Or they know that it's so bad that they didn't even have to bother asking. Well, user interface actually... Let's jump ahead here. Question seven. <laughs> but are there any aspects of Civilization VI that you do not enjoy, not included in the list above? That was my answer to that question. Uh, <laughs> now, whether or not they pay any attention to that question seven or not, because it's clearly not a priority that 2K thinks people would choose that for some reason. But I thought, I'm not going to leave this unanswered just in case somebody with some kind of influence at some point actually reads it. Yeah, there let me go. go back and get in my response I, right now. <laughs> I'm sorry. I had, it's just I had to say that because I'm obligated to do it. And also, Phil's not here, so I'm also doubly obligated to say. Without going into the reasons why, because we talk about this on this show, perhaps ad nauseum, according to some people. Wait, no, we would never. <laughs> like just going through and answering the questions, just out of curiosity and listeners... Perhaps you're not listening to most episodes. Maybe this is the first episode of the show. Where might you stand, relatively speaking? So again, this is just about the data, not about the explanation uh, of the choices. We're going to do a little quantitative thing here rather than qualitative. Yeah. Which of the following games have you played? Um, You just kind of, you know, go around the table, if we had one. Uh, (laughs) I've played them all. They're talking about, since it says listed Civ 1 to Civ 6 checkboxes, it's not including the spinoffs. So they're just talking about the main line. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, my answer is all. Did anybody have a different answer for that? I started with three. Jason, because you started with three, I am amazed you are on this show, amongst other things. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> I did not look at three and go, ah! I didn't know any better. And it was like my first 4X strategy game since Star Trek Birth of the Federation on Windows 98. So wow. it was an improvement over that, at least. Translation from Jason, I was young and stupid. Oh, okay. Yeah, pretty much. Oh, Dan. <laughs> Jason just agreed with me, so... Didn't know any better. <laughs> I think, Mackie, your answer to that is all as well, is it not? Yeah, yeah, because I started with Civ 1. What about you, Drew? I was gifted Civilization 4 by my parents, like, way, way back. But I didn't quite get it. Am I supposed to be putting the Statue of Liberty, but I'm playing Gandhi? So how do I put Statue of Liberty when I'm playing India? Oh, I don't get it. So, yeah. <laughs> so I, I didn't understand the concept of it. But um, it was when uh, Civilization V was announced. I, I was following it then. I was really into Civ V, and I liked it a lot. I do think it was a good game, eventually. Civ VI has, has a lot of good... Uh, I still like the series, but I hope that it becomes less of a monopoly so that there can be some more competition to it. All right. Second question, of all the Civilization games you've played, and this is again Civ 1 through Civ 6, which is your favorite? And of course, it's hard to answer with Civ 6, because Civ 6 is still in development, but uh, I'm going to give the nod to Civ 5. I'm going to have to go Civ 5 up by default, frankly. Yeah, Civ 5 too, just because... It's not from, like, I dislike 6 a bunch or something, but I still think we had more fun with 5? And I I think... 
And I think Dan's correct that, you know, there's still something missing to Civ 6. And in two years, maybe we would all be unanimous on yeah. Civ 6, but right now not. This is true. If you think about it, about it when we were only two expansions into Civ 5, I think we still would have said Civ 4. Yeah, Civ 5 did not release well at all. No. Yeah, but then by the time they got all the expansions out, it was great. And then we played it for a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. That first uh, six or eight months with Civ Five was rough. I think for me, it's a toss-up between four and five. The big issue is that when I was playing Civ Four again, I was still young and didn't really know what I was doing, so I, I didn't understand the game very well, and I wasn't playing at a particularly high level. I think most of my time on Civ Four, I think I was playing on Prince difficulty, and then towards the end of it, I got up to King and maybe tried the one step above King like once or twice and got slaughtered. So just by the simple matter that I understand the game much better, I kind of ha- feel like I have to go with Five by default as well. That being said, I think I like the design philosophy of Civ Four a little bit more because, and, and I know we've had disagreements on this, but I liked Civ Four being more on the almost simulation side of things. Like I I thought Civ 4 found a very good middle ground between the board game designs of the other Civ games and like a more simulationist approach, like what uh, Paradox does with its game. And uh, I don't like that 5 and 6 went very far on the board game side, even though I understand that that's kind of the conception of the series. Hey, Jason. Yes. We've not had disagreements. Never. No, I just wanted to say that all. to be you know, troll-tastic. But again, I'm, I'm not saying that I want Civ to be Europa Universalis over the ages. I'm saying that Civ 4, I think, hit a very comfortable middle ground that I really liked from a design standpoint. Right. You just want more ice cream. It's not that you only want ice cream. Yeah. To you, right now, Civilization 5 and Civilization 6, vanilla. Civilization 4 is vanilla and chocolate, and Europa Universalis is vanilla, chocolate, and strawberry. And nobody wants that strawberry stuff. That stuff is nasty. What? Strawberry's fine. It's all the weird toppings they put on top of the Europa Universalis Sunday. How likely is it that you would recommend Civilization VI to a friend or a colleague? My first thought is, how close am I to this friend and second of off do I like this colleague? But uh, <laughs> Oh, dear. Where 10 is extremely likely, uh, I put my answer at 7. I really think Civilization, and specifically Civilization VI, is a really good game. But at the same time, I need to take into account who the friend or the colleague is, because I might recommend the game to, say, one colleague, but not another colleague, because of the interests and perhaps patience level, (laughs) or just general interest in computer and video games generally, as comparing one colleague to another. Yeah, As much about them as it is about me. Okay, who am I kidding? It's mostly about me, but it's somewhat about them. Yeah, the way I would look at the question is because, you know, not many people play as many video games as other people. You know, that that's that's something I have had to accept that uh, some people don't play video games that often. It's a matter of would you recommend the amount of time you would need to first understand Civ uh, 6 and then be able to play it? I think it's more fun if you have have multiplayer I personally don't think that uh, single-player Civ Six is um, something I would recommend for a friend who had limited amount of time, unless they really liked 4X, in which case I still might think about other types of 4X <laughs> games before I touch I see what you did there. Well, it depends. It depends. It depends on whether or not it's going to be multiplayer or not. I guess that's really the linchpin for me. 
uh, at the end of 2018, when Drew looks back on his personal growth, was able to accept that some people do not play video games as often. <laughs> it's hard, man. It's hard. <laughs> they want to scale here, Drew. How would you categorize all that qualitative stuff oh, into God. a quantitative number? Oh, Be- this is like when you go to the doctor and you're as being asked <laughs> Right, uh, yeah, so. I've never felt pain as another person, so I, how can I compare my pain to another person's pain? So I think I gave a distinct answer, and I'm not going to give a number to it. All right, Drew's answer is seven, because that's consistent with what I want the answer to be. Okay, thanks, Drew. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Jason? <laughs> yeah, that's what I put down as well, seven. As much as I would like to recommend Civ Six to more people so that I would have more people to talk about the game with and you know play multiplayer with, if I was going to recommend one Civilization game to a friend, it would probably be Civ Five with both expansions, just because at this point in time, that's the much more polished product and is going to give that person a much, I think, better opinion or impression of what the Civilization series is. I would do that, too, and also because we know it's complete. And so if we were to guide them on something, it's not going to change because, oh, sorry, the new Civ Five expansion just totally changed that. And now you don't like it. <laughs> you know what to expect and they can know what to expect. What about you, Mackie? No, and that's the same as everybody else with the Seven because it's also dependent on whether you know that person's going to like strategy or can handle that level of complexity in a game. Because some people do like to play video games, but they don't want something that's that involved. They want to relax more when they're playing, so... I probably, yeah, I would probably also go with Civ 5 as opposed to 6 right now mm-hmm. because there's still things that are going to change in 6, whereas 5 is done. And there's still a lot of people playing 5 as well. Number four, just in the three elements that you enjoy the most, so that you enjoy the most. So again, that I'm currently enjoying. Well, for me, actually, this was a pretty easy question to answer. Exploration and discovery, founding and developing cities and districts, and the tech and civic trees, given what they've given as options. I had um, um, building wonders instead of the tech and civic trees. But yeah, I also like the district mechanic. Again, in principle, there are many improvements that could be made to it. Uh, mm-hmm. And I generally like the exploration and discovery, especially since I'm someone who does actually like the art direction for Civ Six. I know there's a lot of people who hate it because it's too cartoony or whatever, but I like it. I think the world looks very vibrant and the world looking so pretty and attractive and having all the moving parts and all the nice animations and there being so much of the game state conveyed by the graphics makes the exploring of the map that much more appealing to me. Note to self, in competitive multiplayer, leave Jason to last because he'll construct lots of wonders for me to take. (laughs) (laughs) Well, part of it's just the wonders are almost an extension of the district system. So if you like placing districts, then you like placing wonders too, right? Yeah. Sometimes it's like, oh, do I really love the wonder that much? Do I love At the district At least you can't get more? bits of building a district. Yeah. But I'd really like an adjacency bonus on my theater, so I will build that wonder. Okay, so the three I do like, these are all conceptual, not the way that they're working right now. But um, I do like the civic tree because it does conceptually make it so science isn't king. And that's something that I said about what I liked on release, if I recall that podcast, and it still holds up. I think that having the civic tree makes it so science isn't king all the time. I also like developing the governments and enacting policies. I think that the absolute best thing that this game did was adding the policy cards. And I've said that many times I'm of many multiple podcasts. I think that being able to change your government every once in a while is not just historical, but also very friendly to the user. And I hope that they continue that in other iterations of Civ. 
Third one, I do, again, like the concept of districts. I don't think that it's at a completed state, but I do like the idea of mini cities within the cities and being able to develop your empire, the cities in your empire, certain ways, depending on the shape of the land and the victory type you're going for. I like that a lot. Well, I have always been a thing with exploration and discovery. It does not matter which 4X gamer stuff. It's like, yeah, yeah, there's a war over there. I haven't finished looking at the map. Go away. I'm trying to explore the map. Quit trying to war me. Mackie wants me to find more wars to watch. Okay. All right. No. 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 <laughs> war is getting on me. <laughs> Turn my back for five minutes. Too busy exploring ocean. Suddenly declare war. What did I do? Given Civ <laughs> 6 right now, that's, you're exploring too much. It's like, yeah, me? you took all the goody huts, Mackie. <laughs> took all the goody huts. <laughs> we don't like boats. We declare war on you. Yeah. Like, Drew, I really do like the policy cards because that gives you so much more to do with the government than it just being a simple switch like it's been in previous games. You know, you can customize it more to how you're playing, you know, because some game you may be going more builder, another game you're going more war or in multiplayer. You might need you need a little bit of both. So I love that a good bit. I'm not sure what to pick for three, though. Maybe spies because this is a lot, a bit better spy system. At least I can control what they're doing instead of it being more. <laughs> at least you can see how much they're going to succeed. Uh, so you can go well. That's two thirds chance. I'll take it. I'll take it. Uh, there is that as compared to Civ Five, certainly. But it's not strong enough for me to choose it as three as my third. Yeah. Well, looking at some of the other things here, it's like that's not. I mean, diplomacy is not that much different. Victory is not much difference. Religions are a bit different, but still, I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I like the religion and the city-states mechanics in Civ Five and Civ Six, but I feel like both of those in Civ Six were a downgrade from Civ Five mm-hmm. in many ways. Maybe that that can be a co-three thing with the district, because that was a good idea. Split this stuff out a little bit more, so you're not just cramming everything into one tile, and looks, and you can do more things with bonuses and stuff with districts than you couldn't previously. Yeah, now they just have to scale the map so that there's actually enough room <laughs> to put all these things on the map. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we broke out the districts from the cities, and now um, um, I need some more land. Can I get your land? Five. Are there any aspects of Civilization Six that you enjoy not included on the list above? Uh, I, I did have an answer for that, and that is yes, that's multiplayer. I was going to say... <laughs> Multiplayer that actually works without breaking too badly. I mean, comparatively wow. to the way it used to break in 4 and 5, this is a, definitely an improvement, even though it still needs more improvement, you know? Oh, yeah. I think for me, one of my favorite things about Civ 5, which was carried over into Civ 6, is the uh, Civ and Leader variety and the uh, specifically the unique abilities that gives each Civ a very distinct flavor and personality and play style. And I would very much like to see more variety and more unique civs that do change up the way that you play the game. Although I do feel like Civ 6 kind of stacks a little bit too much little powers on an individual civ rather than giving them like one big power. Like I kind of preferred how Civ 5 was more about one big ability and Civ 6 is like, oh, just plus a couple of yields here and there. But yeah, I like the idea of making each civ very unique in the way that it plays and the benefits that you get from playing as them. Now, for question number six, and based on past episodes, I know Phil would be joining me in this. Oh, 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 (laughs) that you enjoy least. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. Question number six does not include spies and espionage and combat and war as things you like the least, guys. Mm. So clearly they've already come up with really good ideas for fixing those, so they don't need to ask. Right, guys? (laughs) 
Yeah. Yes. Sure. Yes. You heard it here on Polycast first, ladies and gentlemen. Well, we know what Phil's answer to seven is going to be. Well, I said user interface there. Things that I enjoyed the least, developing religions. Uh, I've talked about this before, so I'm not going to repeat myself. Some people are like, thank you, Dan. You're welcome. Diplomacy and alliances. Again, this is about the things that I do not enjoy the implementation of, not the concept of. And then coming up with a third one based on the list, I actually went with victory conditions. I talked about this before, so I have no intention of going down this path again. But just to reiterate, the game is won, so can the game end now, formally, please? Yes, something, Bueller? I'm with you on that last one there, Dan, the victory conditions. I mean, (laughs) we've talked about on the show, I've written several blog posts about how I think that the victory conditions in the Civilization game should be completely rethought. Because A, they're getting a little stale at this point where six games into the uh, franchise plus the spinoff games have very similar analogous victory conditions. So I would like to see if there's going to be a Civ 7, you know, which there probably will be at some point. Just maybe even think of go back to the drawing board and try something completely experimental with regard to victory conditions. What else did you have on your list other than victory conditions for this one? Uh, It was kind of hard to pick because, again, there's so many parts of Civ 6 that could really use some work and fine tuning. But I went with diplomacy alliances, even though I think that the alliance mechanic that was added in Rise and Fall is a decent step in the right direction diplomacy just as a whole yeah almost needs to go back to the drawing board as well for the series not specifically with civ 6 but just that's for the whole series of civ diplomacy and interacting with the other civs has always been a weak spot for me anyway yeah yeah i understand that it's diplomacy and alliances because that's the way they've categorized it but it's really the diplomacy part alliances just kind of went along for the ride Yeah. And then my third one was I I went with great people, kind of just I'm just not really feeling the way that Civ 6 generates great people. I think the big thing for me is that they're all coming out of a common bucket and there's very much a rich get richer mentality with them where the person who focuses early on getting great people just gets all of the great people in that particular category. And the other civs are just kind of like left out to dry. I also really wish that in the case of the artists in particular, because of the way that the theming works, that we got to pick each category of great person should maybe have like two or three different great people available. And when you spawn a great person, you get to pick which of them you want. So that in the case of the artists, you can pick, oh, yes, I want the sculptor because I want a theming bonus for sculptures in my city. And there's literally only like three sculptors in the entire game. So I don't like that I have to rely on RNG to get that particular person to complete the theming bonuses, even though I think the intent from Firaxis is to make you have to try to trade for your great works. But, you know, the AI is so stingy with trading great works and they are just constantly asking for mine even though i'm not willing to give them up that it just gets annoying man as you're describing this i'm trying to reconcile on my mind what a possible solution could be so one of them is to say okay rather than being random which one you're going to get you're in this particular era you're generating great merchant points to use that as an example okay show me all of this era's great merchants that have not yet been chosen. Right. Yet at the same time, that also rewards those people who have been contributing to the great merchant point pool from the beginning because they're going to have the choice of which one that they want. So then it then my mind kind of goes to, okay, do we try to somehow balance the abilities of the great merchants, but then you risk them all becoming bland and what's the point of having different ones? Just label them great merchant one, two, and three. 
I don't even think you have to go Honestly, that far. It would, it would just be similar to how religions work. You know, there are better pantheons and better religious beliefs than others. And being the first person to get there means you yeah. get the better ones. My problem is more just like the people who focus on the great people just spam all of them and leave almost none. You know, if I've got one theater district running, Greece has like four of them. Every time I get close, Greece is just going to spam another one and push the threshold for me spawning one even further. I think there is the possibility for you to be able to respond in a situation like that where you've got one theater district and someone else has four in terms of the, well, you can go and you can snipe, as violent as that sounds, one of the great people through either gold or faith purchasing. Maybe there just needs to be a little more dynamic, uh, a little more in-depth, a little more opportunity to alert the player to the fact that if you wanted to have those notifications on, hey, did you know that you've got enough something accumulated that you could uh, go and adopt this one right now? Yeah, more notifications. Yeah, I, I'm just, like I said, I'm just not feeling the way that the mechanic works right now. And it, it might just be a personal hang-up on my part. You know, not necessarily that it's a bad mechanic, just uh, it's not working for me. As for the notifications part, I understand the general disdain in Drew's voice. <laughs> it could be something that you could toggle. I want to be notified when I've accumulated enough, and you just make it a checkbox, and then that way uh, I want to be notified when I have enough to get any great uh, to be able to purchase with gold or faith any great person or this type of great person. Well, they do that with faith units, so... Yeah, so you could have that for uh, uh, great people as well. I don't like the trading and trade route system over the way Civ Five did it. Part of it is because of the fact that there's no trade back to the Civ that you're trading to, which I think was a good system that was taken out for no real good reason. The Alliance's system kind of has that, but I think that the trading system is half done because of it. Yeah, I've said before on the show that the receiving civilization should be getting something out of the trade rows, just like the one that's being sent to. It's just created a system where you just look for the one that has the highest yields and you just send it there and you just don't care because it doesn't you don't have to worry about, oh, this civ's an enemy. I don't want to give them more, you know. Gold or well, that was part of the strategy. Were... That on top of it too, yes. No, that, that's what I'm saying. I like that about Civ Five, where you had to think about these other factors. Like at this point, the trade routes might as well just be automatic. Go to the highest gold yield city. Like, why does it even bother asking you? Yeah, why bother? Yeah, the, yeah. The only thing that actually would stop you is if, like, if there was an enemy in the way, and you're like, oh well, you know, I can't put it there, so I'm going to get plundered. So there's that. Another one I don't like uh, how city states work. Pretty much all fashions. I think that Civ Five did it better. And I don't like envoys because I have to micromanage them. And I don't like the suzerain system because uh, it's a pain to try to maintain them. And some of the bonuses are a little out of whack compared to others. I do want to say that the one thing that I think Civ Six did improve considerably is giving each city-state the unique suzerain bonus, and that adds a little bit more flavor and historical context. I think that was a good move, but I agree I like, with you on in the other regards. I like the concept. I don't like the way that it's like, oh, well, it's this city-state, therefore I'm going to just knock it down instead of uh, take it. Some of them are real stinkers, and some of them are way too good, I think. And I'd rather not have to think that way when it comes to uh, city-states. And my third one would be developing religions. Just like Civ Five. I still think that the effort, the amount of clicks required to maintain a good religion is not worth the amount of time and effort on the user to develop the religion. I will agree with you with Civilization Six, not with regards to Civilization Five. I thought it absolutely was worth it. I agree. I believe Civ Five did uh, did that a little better. 
Well, I too would like to see the great people work just a little bit different, even if it was just like there's a pool of two or three that you could pick from. I mean, obviously the AI is going to have preferences, even the human players are going to have a preference, and you're still somebody who concentrates on them. It's going to get better choices. But, you know, there's sometimes when we sit there in the multiplayer and we're all passing on the same great person because it's not useful to us at that yes. moment of the style we're playing. <laughs> yeah, that is true. And, yeah. So even if you just had a second choice or even a pool of two or, th- or three that you would pick from, at least the points would keep going. We wouldn't sit there having to accumulate a stupid amount of points before we wait for the AI to finally pick it up. Yeah, I guess it could be if you have a choice, let's say there are three types of this great person in the classical era, that you're the first one to there. It's like, I'm always going to be the first one there. I'm always choosing this one. If there are three, maybe there's a random chance that rather than showing you all three, it's just going to show you two. Or it's only going to show you two of four, or three of four, or three of five, or whatever. Something. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. Yeah, there, there should be more available yes. than is put into the selection pool. So if they're going to show you three, there should be at least four or five possible that go into that pool to choose from. So that it's not just always the same three, and then it's basically just a, another governor mechanic. Yeah. Yeah, and then that solves the problem you're having with trying to theme great works together. Then you can pick the kind that you need, hopefully. Right, yeah. And that's the place where I think it, it's the, the most annoying is with the great work theming. Because the, the theming requirements is another major downgrade from Civ Five, where they're just ridiculously strict. Yeah, and I also have to go for the whole diplomacy and alliance. The alliances thing aren't bad, because especially multiplayer, we've been able to work that around. But, you know, like the AI popping up every few turns, you want to sell your great works? You want to sell your great works? You want to sell your great works? It's like, can I have a toggle that says, I am not interested in trading great works full stop? That would be great, because all these inquiries would stop. And the AI needs to stop being so dang stingy with every trade. Here, I want to get one luxury resource from you. Yeah, can I have three of yours? What? To springboard off of that... To have any kind of decent deals often in trade, you need to spend the time to micro ridiculously. Hey, what will it take? That button, I'm not necessarily saying, we talked about this before, that it's always going to give you the best deal. But if they're willing to entertain a deal, they should at least say, okay, we'll, we'll give you this. There's absolutely no deal that I will say is acceptable. Uh, I go and click on by default, uh, how much gold per turn will you give me? Yeah, I'll take that. What? Uh, yeah, a little misinformation really there. I don't mind the micro when I'm ending a war and I'm trying to get the best deal out of it. But when you're trying to do a regular deal, just like for trade goods, and it's like, really, are we going to micro over how many per turn or how much gold you'll give me up front? Wow. I just What they're willing to give you is based almost pretty much entirely on how much they like you as opposed to like, you know, if you've got a monopoly on this resource and they literally can't get it from anywhere else and they need another luxury resource, like you can't strong arm them into being like, yeah, give yeah. me a bunch of stuff or else you're not getting it. Other than that, or they really like you, so they're willing to pay top dollar for something they could get cheaper somewhere else. Right. Yeah, and I, uh, on the third, I guess I have to go for the victory thing, too. I mean, we've talked about this on previous episodes, I think, where there's so many times where you're sitting there and you, in a sense, this gameplay is you finish the game. You're just going to have to sit there and click next turn for however many things till it's technically complete. But the thing is, I don't know what the solution is to that. I would love to give them something, but I... Uh, if and when someone comes up with a solution to that, they will be the civilization community's hero. <laughs> yeah. And we will know and we will pass down their name through the ages and we will tell it in the form of a saga. That grows more and more epic and more and more over the top as each passing year goes. <laughs> uh, like- I think we can answer number seven. All right, anybody have a different answer other than user interface? Again, are there any aspects of Civilization Six that you do not enjoy not included on the list above? 
One thing that I wanted to add to that is, and this is something that we've talked about on the show before I wrote a blog post or two about it, is the way that the difficulty levels are handled. I really don't like how the higher difficulty levels just stack a bunch of AI bonuses and free stuff at the beginning of the game because it just front loads all the challenge. And once you overcome all that, you end up with the same problem where you're just hitting end turn until a victory screen pops up. That's a continual problem with uh, AI opponents, though that we don't have a lot of ways to make them specifically smarter without alienating the players. I know that Stellaris has a mechanic where the AI bonuses actually scale up over as the game progresses. And I'm not necessarily saying that I think that's the best approach, but I mean, maybe something like that is worth examining in the context of Civ. A little extra bonus per era, maybe? Yeah. So that in the late game, the AIs are competitive still, hopefully, then because I would much prefer a system where I start the game at a relative competitive balance and everything is wide open. And then as the sieves specialize themselves and go down separate paths, then they start to gain power. I just don't like how playing on emperor or deity or whatever and just, oh, the AI starts with two free settlers and they're just going to forward settle you on like turn 10 and yeah. now you are just stuck having to build a butt ton of military units because you nothing else is viable. Because if you don't build military units, they're just going to send their horses in and conquer you. It just it forces you down very specific play styles at the higher difficulty levels. And for me, it's it's just not fun. I do not enjoy playing Civ Six at difficulty levels higher than what's the one right above King? That's Emperor. Yeah, uh, yeah, higher than King and Emperor, just because I don't like that the AI gets all of this free stuff right at the start of the game, and right from the start, I'm playing catch-up. I'd rather play catch-up later in the game because I fell behind rather than starting the game playing catch-up, and then the whole rest of the game is still just me in the lead. I don't like that domestic tourist information is still not shown and that the culture of victory is not uh, oh, yeah. in the game. I need to be able to set cities per yield just like in Civ Force, so that I don't need to click on a city every time I need to make a new build. Like, I don't need to be looking at the map every single time I need to make a new build, especially in Civ 6, where you are able to make a lot more cities than you can in Civ 5. In the top of my head, and it's very clear that user interface or user experience, whatever you want to call it nowadays, Fraxis 2K, this is one of the biggest problems in Civ 6 and part of the reason I don't play Civ 6 as much as I would like to is because of it. All right. I think uh, just to cover it, Civilization 6's art style, the graphical quality, music, and the sound effects, that's going to be very subjective, especially say like uh, the art style or even the graphical quality really depends on your system. There's question 17 about how would you rate the game customization options, rate the following features, which I did go ahead and do, but I think that's probably more meaningful to have discussed on previous episodes and upcoming episodes where it's more specific to a particular topic. But I think we can end on the artificial intelligence specifically because it's a big part of the Civilization VI gameplay experience because as we've said before on the show, most people are going to be playing the single player most of the time, if not in fact all of the time. So I think questions 11 through 6, what they call, uh, are listed here as 16, uh, is quite relevant. How would you rate the computer artificial intelligence, which is very difficult to do in terms of a number, because there's lots of subjectivity stuff in there, and even I'm thinking, is this about the AI's ability to respond to certain mechanics or not, even though the implementation may not be what it should be? So I've taken that as, given what is currently in the game, not what could be in the game, let alone should be in the game, in my own opinion, 
how well do I feel that the AI does? And on a scale of one to five, where I'm assuming, again, five is perfecto and one is complete crapo, <laughs> crapo, I, and maybe I'm being generous, I really wish there were half stars in here, but you can't, so I'm like, fine, I'll give you a three. Yeah, I think on this one, you need to really just take a step back and be very general on this, because, yeah, the, the phrasing, it's not very indicative for specific examples. Yeah, three's pretty fair because it does some things well, but then there's a lot of things that need improvement still. It's not perfect at all. Yeah, I misread this question. I didn't realize it was asking for numeric values, so I just wrote text. But I guess, yeah, somewhere in the three range, I guess is about where I would put it. Like you said, it's a very situational. Uh, The AI does a very poor job with the way it uses its units, like specifically. The two biggest weaknesses are it's not very good at using its units and it's not very good at planning city development and i think both of those come down to the same fundamental problem which is that the ai is as far as i can tell completely incapable of looking ahead into the game state it does not plan in advance it's always just picking what is the best thing for it to do now for varying definitions of best I think that also comes back to the amount of power available in an average system, because that would add a bunch more cycles to the AI processing per turn. True. And I I almost wish that there was just like a slider or a setting or something like that in the options where they just where they could just tell you, hey, if you set this higher, the AI will play better, (laughs) but your turn time will be longer as long as the user knows that. And if turn times are a big problem for you, then you can set that lower. Or if you're a beginner in the game and you're playing on an easy difficulty level anyway, then, yeah, you get the benefit of quicker turn processing times. But I don't know. It's it's I like the idea. I think it's asking a bit much. Yeah, I mean, that would be difficult to implement from a technical level because then you got to put all those extra checks in as well. And yeah, it's not an easy thing to do. But I mean, it's maybe something to consider because I know turn processing time comes up often. And I think I even saw that listed in this thread topic that some people were complaining about turn processing times being too long. And I'm like, well, if longer turn processing times means I get better AI performance and I can actually get a competitive game on King and Emperor difficulty, I will take Take the longer turn processing times. So you're saying if if Civ Six was an eight bit game, you'd like it as long as the game performs better and the AI is better. As, as you know, that's just as a as a, an example, because I would make that assertion as well. Yeah, and, and as I said earlier, I do very much like that Civ Six's art style conveys a lot of information about the game state on the map without you having to go into menus and city screens and stuff like that. So as long as it retains that, but has a simpler graphical style, I would be okay with that. For number 12, what aspects of the game's AI do you believe needs improvement? I believe this will be the fastest question we will cover on this episode. Watch how this goes. Alliances, check. Diplomacy, check. Empire building, check. Trading, check. War, check. Okay, we're done. Right? Anyone disagree? (laughs) All the things. Okay, yes. Yeah. (laughs) And then lastly for this survey, 14, this, do you feel the AI, again, artificial intelligence, has been improved by any of the following? And of course, improved without getting into from going from a 5% rating to a 10% rating is an improvement, LOL. Patches, bug fixes, and game updates. Yes. The Rise and Fall expansion, yes, I believe the AI has improved. But I don't believe any downloadable content has improved the AI because that's just adding more content. There's no tweaking and adding game systems every dlc comes with a patch that's free to everybody whether you have the dlc or not and i was a little bit confused with this question as to whether they were trying to refer to the patches that came with the dlc packages 
because a lot of those did have bug fixes and, and yes. AI yeah. things. So I took that as question 14. That's part of the patches and bug fixes. Yeah. And the downloadable content is just the not that stuff that comes right. with the, what, no, yeah. adding a new sieve or new leader does not mm. improve the AI. No. I mean, I guess if you write <laughs> no. a new if you write a new AI specifically for a new DLC leader, then okay, maybe that leader has really good AI, but that doesn't improve the overall AI of the game. I'm filling the blanks in for Firaxis on this, whether or not the game's AI has been improved since launch. And I would say that while there has been a lot of changes to the AI since launch has been that naval has been more uh, prevalent. There's other rule changes that I think have positively benefited the AI. Things like religious units being on their own lair, I think, dramatically improved mm, you know, that, certain elements of AI yeah. performance because they're not blocking yeah. units and the units aren't running around in circles anymore. Absolutely. So, but that, that's not specifically an AI improvement. That's, that's a right. rule change. Yeah, a rule change overall game fix. But I think the more important question regarding these is how these two questions relate which is I do feel like Firaxis focused too much on releasing new DLC to the exclusion of making core game fixes. I would have preferred to see fewer DLC packages and more core gameplay improvements. for episode 314 with Dan Q, Makalua, the Mean Team, and Mega Bears fan. Makalua without us to Civs, Vassals, and other things. Starting with some Civ buffs, Makalua without suggests buffing England, Sun never sets, plus two trade routes on researching mercantilism. Yeah, or uh, maybe UA gives them plus one economic policy slot if the Civ has at least five trade routes. In addition to National History Museum. Nah, okay. Give England some money, I guess. I think I would prefer to have an economic bonus that is explicitly tied to settling on other continents so that it ties more into the theming of the Civ more. So I don't know if this is an addition to their current powers or if it's a replacement. Yeah, I don't know. If, I, if I would it's say, in addition uh, to, then I would like for it to also be themed similarly so it's a buff that you get in cities or trade routes that are intercontinental fair enough for norway the uh, nar ua should also give them a pantheon as soon as they start uh, i.e turn one in addition to their under their benefits whoa that's uh that's interesting mm. so you are guaranteed first pick pantheon is norway yeah, that's no. make them better than uh, they are now yeah. no <laughs> <laughs> or if that's too spicy, which apparently it sounds like it is, Nara should give Norway plus one faith capital or plus five faith bonus each time they improve a sea resource. Well, one thing to keep in mind about that, though, is that on turn one, you haven't explored any of the map yet. So you have no idea what resources are around you. So having to pick uh, Pantheon at that point is actually a little bit of a liability because your knowledge of the game board is so limited. There's that, too. Yeah. Yeah, if you pick something like Stone Circles, right, because you've got no one stone. or two... Yeah, because you've got one or two stone next to your capital, and then you start exploring, and you find that there's no other stone anywhere near you. And then you got, like, three coffee or something, and then you're like, oh, I would have rather taken that pantheon. Yeah, you would have rather taken goddess of festivals because you had an abundance of those crops. 
I still right. think that would be interesting bonus. I don't know if I would agree with actually putting it in the game, but it would certainly be interesting to start the Pantheon immediately. <laughs> yeah, I think what it would end up doing is it would just put a lot of pressure on Norway players to just pick a Pantheon that's like just universally useful, like the, what is it, 10% growth in all cities or whatever, you know, something like that. That you know you're like something that generic, often. yeah. Yeah, something that's just... You do get something in your capital that would benefit from a Pantheon with a fair frequency, and you could just take that and it would be really good because you have access to it immediately. So you just start off with more yields than everybody else. And in a game that snowballs, that's pretty good. I think that's what you would typically do. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's going to depend on which resource it is and what you're planning on doing long term. But yeah, because like you could easily translate that into being guaranteed first to something else. Like, say you get the culture from pastures or something, then you're getting governments before everybody else. And you just keep going with that. Yeah, you'll, you'll win some races that would be impossible for anybody else to win. And the other thing he was uh, saying is to make berserkers less bad, basically taking away some or all of their defensive penalty and uh, movement bonus should be shared with any units to start their turn adjacent. That would be interesting, too. That would make berserkers a lot better. Berserkers would be a game long unit if uh, they boosted units adjacent. You wouldn't necessarily fight with them, but <laughs> you would always have a berserker hanging out behind <laughs> stuff. <laughs> Just give them all the medic promotions. Do the Berserkers at least boost the movement of support units and stuff that are on the same tile? Because that could be a good thing to add. That would be nice with a battering ram, yeah. Yeah, so if you have a battering ram or a medic or something like that attached to your Berserker or a general. I mean, generals already move pretty fast, so you probably don't need that for a general. But for battering rams, you can actually take the battering ram with you when you move your three or four spaces or whatever. Yeah, without training up a friggin' light cavalry unit. Yeah. Okay, Japan. Change samurai to heavy cavalry. Otherwise, they should say the same. It's, uh, okay, whatever. (laughs) They will be slightly less good against pikes, but that doesn't make much difference in practice. Egypt. Uh, A clue without says, I don't play Egypt, but I get the sense it's considered a little weak. That's quite the basis for a buff right there. Anyway, um, uh, Itero gives Egypt a free monument in his capital. Or Egypt has some minor yield for cities founded next to a river. That would be thematic to a degree. Uh, yeah, culture I'm, would probably I'm, be too strong. Maybe gold or faith. Yeah. I'm unclear about whether this is replacing the existing ability or in addition to it. Giving Egypt a free monument in its capital. Rome is already getting that. Yeah. You could give Egypt the faith and uh, cities founded next to a river because that would be very thematic. Yeah. Yes. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't mind a religious bonus for Egypt or a faith bonus. Spain. Eclodot does not actually think Spain is underpowered. Are you kidding me? But okay. Uh, but if they need to change and buff the uh, LA, let's see. Improved Holy Parish Project or finish additional faith if your holy site is adjacent to your capital. I mm, I don't know. Spain's kind of rough because they're so religion dependent. Yeah. But they have nothing that guarantees that they'll get one. If you actually want to make them decent, I would increase their consistency somehow. Unit stuff uh, and buildings and districts. Spearmen, these are getting a slight buff in Rise and Fall. Yeah, and all they did get a slight buff, but they're still bad. <laughs> so what does he suggest to do in addition to this? Spearmen line units only get a negative to melee when they are not fortified and or always have a one gold per turn cheaper maintenance than any equivalent era melee or cavalry units. Hmm. So you roll up and fortify? Jeez, would even that be good enough? Would any of you guys start using spears? Uh, great for choke point situations. That's what I'm using them for. They're not. Yeah. They're not offensive in any way. I'd be using yeah. them for pretty much the same thing that I currently use them for, which is to plop them on my strategic resources so that a mounted unit doesn't sneak in and pillage it. Yeah, 
That's true. But uh, that wouldn't change much between what we have now and what's suggested to what it's. <laughs> and one gold per turn cheaper maintenance? Uh, you're probably not even going to feel that. Although that would be nice. I mean, it's something. It's something, but it feels like it's it's just something for something's sake. Uh, it's, just, it's not enough. Yeah. All for buffing them, don't get me wrong. But uh, I, I think they just need like a harder bonus against cavalry or something. And the other part, Spearman, your upgrade path. Oh, I need to go to military tactics, which is dead end, and that's a pikeman. Oh, part of the Spearman line would be actually having it so that pikemen were attached to a tech that was not dead end, less about the Spearman unit itself. That would be more helpful in and of itself than either of these suggestions, I think. I think also if just mounted units weren't quite as fast, Spearman would be a lot better because you might actually be able to catch up to a mounted unit and attack it and use the bonus that you get towards them. But the bonus you get towards them is pretty lackluster. Like a contemporary spear is only about on par with a mounted unit. The reason you saw uh, spears in games like Civ 4 was that they got a 100% bonus. Like they were much, much stronger than cavalry, even though they were liability otherwise. Yeah, I agree that that's probably what the bonus should be. Again, I would say that a bigger problem with them is still just that because of the way that the movement rules work in Civ 6, it's just really hard to attack a mounted unit with any slower unit, let alone with a spear. And even if you just camp the spear to defend, the mounted units can basically just go right around it. So either without the mounted units being slower or without the spearmen being faster, it's so hard to catch up to a mounted unit to be able to attack it and use that bonus, even if it were a stronger bonus. Yeah. It'd be a much better defensive unit, that's for sure. You'd probably want to put it on your flanks, but you're not going to be charging at the cavalry because you're just not going to get to them. Maybe you just increase their base strength that the present anti-mounted bonus is useful, and then the other side needs to do something to counter them, and namely build melee. Because like, even if you buffed spears, pikes, and whatever, their direct strength is not scaring anybody. So I, I wouldn't be too worried about giving him a boost there. All right, heavy cavalry units. Uh, he wants a slight nerf for those because they're too strong, but maybe not that strong. Uh, let's see. Heavy cav don't get a card which reduces their production or upgrade costs is the suggestion here to uh, nerf them a little bit. I guess it just makes them a bit more costly to field somehow, both or, with upgrades or building. Or alternatively, just having a better anti-mounted unit line where there's actually counterplay for them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that would probably work. If then knights you had a counter, then them. maybe uh, you could counter knights with things other than knights. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep. Fancy that. Originally, a, pike, a pikeman against a knight was a great idea in the game. Not so much. Villages. Cities would look better oh, if they had okay. more sprawl. It would provide plus one housing instead of a farm's point five. After feudalism... Would provide an adjacency bonus to adjacent farms, just like normal farms do. Village would also provide a minor adjacency to districts. You would not be able to work a village tile. So building a village means you're giving up the tile. As you advance through the tech tree, these villages would look larger, more built up, and more modern. I mean, it sounds like it's basically just an improvement that's a weaker neighborhood. So yeah, yeah an earlier tech tree neighborhood. In that context, I'd say, why not just have neighborhoods available earlier and then just have their bonuses increase as you progress on the tech tree? Yes. Yeah, and the whole, yeah. you can build over villages with neighborhood suggestion at the end kind of ties into that, and that's yeah. true. Yeah. Like, especially if you can't work the tile. I mean, if you can't work the tile, then it's less of an improvement and more of a district anyway. So might as well just 
move neighborhoods to earlier in the tech tree and have their housing bonus scale up with tech tree or whatever. Although he's suggesting to make these things with builders, which or, makes it a bit of a hybrid improvement slash district. Or put more building upgrades in the neighborhood. You know, like they added the, the shopping mall and the uh, food market or whatever. Maybe have like apartment tenement or something like that building that's available in like the Renaissance or industrial era that increases the housing cap. Starts adding like taller apartment buildings as opposed to like little huts and shacks and stuff like that. Well, on that note, he does suggest uh, some things with markets and shopping centers, like uh, that they should be built in your city center, not in the neighborhood district itself. And he'd also like to see neighborhoods give adjacency to uh, some of the other districts. Yeah, I think he and I are just like fundamentally opposed on this issue. I like to see more yeah. districts have more buildings. I would like to see more buildings in neighborhoods like a park or a school or something like that. Yeah, because you have all those things in neighborhoods and both in downtown. So, you know. Yeah, yeah I, I wouldn't mind seeing neighborhoods have public schools and city parks and things like that in them. And maybe even some other stuff. Movie theater. Yeah, if you want to make the neighborhood the place to build things like that and then reserve the city center for the big buildings type of a thing. Yeah, the big question is whether or not you would want to have to build those in each neighborhood individually or if you just build it and it's in all neighborhoods yeah, like if you wanted public schools in all the neighborhoods, maybe you build a school system. Yeah. Or maybe it's just a project. Ooh, construct all schools in all of your neighborhood districts. Well, I tried to give it a nice name, Dan. No, we can't have nice things. This is Civ. What? Can't what? Have what? Nice things. what? What do you mean? And then implement a standardized test. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> oh. <laughs> wow. Okay, continuing on. Uh, I want a small buff to harbors. Basically, if you six envoys in a commercial city state, you get plus gold to tier three buildings. That's uh, pretty minor. Storehouse. It's odd that no matter how many farms or how much food a city has, this doesn't increase the food yield for any internal trade routes to this city. My suggestion is a storehouse district. It adds plus one food to all internal trade routes to the city for every one farm wheat or rice, and for every four farms generally. Must be filled adjacent to a harbor or commercial hub. And gives plus one adjacency bonus to harbors, commercial hubs, and industrial zones. Does not have any building, but add some gold yields after certain later civics facts are researched. This no. Is, I'm starting to laugh as I'm reading this. Could you imagine the centralization of food production with something like this? This would be very amusing. <laughs> not as a district, but I could see storehouse as a building that could go in your city district, or I don't know, maybe that aqueduct. This would be a game changer. This would not be a, a trivial addition to the game. <laughs> you would see Empire set up differently outright because of this one thing. It would be uh, interesting, though. Yeah, his specifics about what it would add, mm, yeah, questionable, but have it as a separate district, I'm just like, right away, no, no, I just have it be something that you could construct in a city itself. It's maybe part of the commercial district or the harbor. I don't well, know. Unless, like having more was... districts that are like kind of random like this wouldn't necessarily be bad for the game because right now you do have the problem that you have much, much, much more terrain than you can realistically work for almost the entire game. So having the trade-off of taking away a tile in favor of something like this, which well, only contributes adjacency and has secondary bonuses, is not necessarily bad conceptually. Although I, I don't want to see them implement new interlocking mechanics that break game balance, but they could be decent as a concept in principle. I would see this maybe if there was like an actual agriculture district, like maybe if the, the granary were moved into the agriculture district and then you had the storehouse and, you know, maybe like a something else that boosts farm yield locally as well. Uh, I could mm. see maybe something like that working. But yeah, I do not like the idea of just having an entire district that is just like one building. We already have that in an aqueduct. Hey, let's have the storehouse tied to an aqueduct. There you go. 
Right. And even I would, <laughs> wouldn't mind seeing things like being able to build the water mill in the aqueduct district and things like that. Yeah, it's a district that could use a few more buildings. Yep. I wouldn't mind having options where certain buildings can actually be built in <laughs> one of multiple different district types. So your granary and your water mill could be built in either the city center or in aqueduct districts. <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry. I, I'm just picturing the uh, implications of putting a water mill in a Roman bath. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, <laughs> faster. We need more power. <laughs> And not too relevant to discussion, just an amusing thought. <laughs> oh no, he wants to bring back courthouses. What does he want them to do? You can lock a courthouse of feudalism. Each courthouse gives you plus loyalty and plus gold, and there's a governor in that city. Okay, fine. That's fine. Yeah, that's fine. Everything's fine. Nothing's ruined. I, I can accept this. There's also a suggestion after Enlightenment, all cities with courthouse with, and within nine tiles of a city with governor would also get plus loyalty. Okay, whatever. Government house. This would be another city center building. All right. You can only build one and only in either your capital or a city with a government plaza. The building would have a different names depending on your sieve. Uh, Rome would get a Senate, for example. I don't know what you would put in some of the sieves. You'd have to make some crap up, but okay. Unlock this political philosophy with the building. You get plus one gold or maybe influence for every X population. Bonus would be very minor. However, when you get to tier two of government, the gold would increase. And then when you get to tier three, all cities with courthouses would get a loyalty bonus regardless of whether or not they had or were in range of a governor. Hmm. Yeah, so you'd have the choice whether to build this early on, whether or not to give it a huge bonus, or build it later when it would be cheaper and have more impact. But you just call it, go ahead and call it Government House. Forget about the specific names. Yeah, it doesn't, yeah. yeah. It's a bit of a distraction. But the notion that you're going up to different tier government, giving you another bonus, yeah, I, I'm fine with that. Especially, again, you can only build one. Like I said, it's only built either in your capital or a city with a government plaza. You can make it so that it actually has to be in the government plaza, whether that's in your capital or not. But besides those minor things, it sounds fine to me. Because it could be a very minor thing. You might decide you want to have a government plaza in, say, a fringe city early on to give you some more influence, to give you some more loyalty to say that, you know what, the capital might be over here, but our government isn't in bureaucratic infrastructure right here. I just feel like it's not adding a lot. Like, if you add the courthouse first, I don't see what this is doing in addition that couldn't be handled by just investing in courthouses from a strategic standpoint. I mean, he is talking about courthouses coming at feudalism. This could be something before that, but then it's questionable why... You don't have to make the courthouses come at feudalism. No. But, like, this is such an obvious building once you have committed to building courthouses at all, because it just boosts all of them at once. So why wouldn't you make it at some point? These changes also make loyalty a bit less meaningful in offensive conquest, which as much as I like to conquer, I'm not sure that's the way to go. Because right now you really need to think about how you approach conquest loyalty perspective. And if you add a lot of boosters against that, then it stops being as much of a problem to just conquer stuff in whatever order. Yeah, I still think with the loyalty mechanic the way it is now, there's way too much raising of cities being necessitated by loyalty. But this could easily push us the other way, which would not get us any farther ahead. Hmm. I don't raise that often over loyalty. I'm all for there having to be strategic choice in terms of what you capture first, for example. And I'd much, be much more interested in things that you could actively do within cities that you've just conquered that give you a reasonable amount of time to actually do them in order for them to come into effect to give you a chance to hold on to the city rather than feel like I have to raise it or capture it several times over. 
But this government house and courthouse thing, yeah, I could see that becoming then I don't have to worry about loyalty at all. So maybe just one or the other, just perhaps the courthouse is, is a stronger way to go about it rather than having the government house tied to the government plaza. We don't need both. Archaeological museums, hmm. This is an idea that I really like in principle. I would very much like to see paleontology be a part of the game where you are digging up fossils. I just don't see why you would need scientists to do it like this proposal. I'd rather it just be use the regular archaeologist and you just dig up fossils instead of historic artifacts and you put them in the museums and the museum gets deemed as a natural history museum. Or alternatively, yeah. natural history museum be a third type of museum that you build and maybe paleontologist being a separate unit. But I'd prefer to just keep it streamlined and just have one archaeologist unit. So uh, he also suggests a small buff to specialists, uh, perhaps getting the adjacency or building bonuses. And that's true. They're certainly not at the level they were in previous saves. Yeah, I rarely ever use them, except for when I need to generate more great people points. The problem is that it's usually just better to work a tile. Yep. Yeah, even if you want great people points, you could just run the project and work hammers. Right, yeah, you're better Unless off doing that. the city that. just doesn't have them, but then why are you settling that study? Maybe. I mean, there are some cases where you might run specialists. They don't have a strong presence in the game, so okay. Next up is Vassal Cities. Not to be confused with Civ for Peace Vassals. The suggestion here is to make a uh, version of it that's a modified free city. It's a bonus loyalty to staying free. Uh, the Civ which controls it must spend gold to maintain it, but while doing so, you get a percentage of culture, science, and faith yields from the Vassal. Uh, you're, you would lose the Vassal status if you sold it or if another city conquers or flips it, basically. Interesting. A little shades of Civ Five here. Yeah, yeah. It, it does kind of remind me of those uh, puppet cities that you would take from people. Yep. Second. Would a Basil city be a city state, or would that be something that you conquered from another Civ? It must be something you conquered. Because he says it's essentially a free city, but does that mean it has to have been another Civ city that flipped to free city because of loyalty pressure and then you can vassalize it? Or is it something you conquer and then you vassalize it? Or is it only city states that you can vassalize? There's no detail here. I'm going to guess that this is going to be like you set up vassal status on conquest of a city that is not yours. Yeah, that would make the most sense. Yeah. And I would also very much like to have becoming a vassal be a diplomatic option for ending a war so that you don't have to capture every single city. You can actually just get them to surrender and become your vassal. That was one of my favorite features of Civ 4. Yeah, to say when you loyalty flip a city or capture it. So it could be a Civ proper or it could be a city state. Yeah. There's some details to sort out there, but from a hassle-saving perspective, certainly the vassal uh, mechanic could be brought back in a way that's not awful, like the peace vassal crap in Civ 4, and still would be decent from a gameplay perspective. <sighs> Second, after the ancient era, oh, he's, he's adding, uh, every barb camp should have a percentage chance of becoming a free city. If it becomes a free city, it immediately gets a builder to improve its territory and some units. These barb cities will flip between being either neutral or aggressive. If they go aggressive, They'll attack nearby cities. You can reduce the chance of, of them going aggressive by converting them to your religion or eliminate the risk by making them vassal cities. Okay, so there's a source of vassal cities, barb cities, which don't exist at the moment. I'm not terribly keen on the idea of it just being a percentage chance. I'd rather that that be some sort of mechanic, maybe associated with what the barbarians are doing. So maybe I like. Agree. Maybe each barbarian encampment has like a little meter that fills up and that meter fills up each time the barbarians kill a unit or pillage an improvement or capture a civilian or attack a city or something like that. And then when they get to a certain threshold, then it spawns a free city 
this suggestion has come up many times, going all the way back to Civ Five, and the idea before was always to have barbarians turn into city-states. So now that we have this neutral, free city faction, this might actually be feasible now. Yeah, I wouldn't mind it. Yeah. And if they're flipping between neutral or aggressive, it talks about if they go aggressive, then they will attack nearby cities. So what is influencing them being neutral or aggressive? I could see it being, you know, that barbarian camp's proximity to a civilization. The closer they are to it, the more likely that they're going to be aggressive and then they're going to go after that. Maybe what you just do is just if it was a barbarian encampment or a barbarian outpost, it should just automatically become aggressive. And if it was a free city that was a city that flipped from loyalty pressure, it should start as non-aggressive. So it's not automatically always at war with everybody, maybe only at war with the Civ that used to control it. But then there should be ways to reduce their aggression level. Like killing their units. Well, like killing their units or diplomatic mechanics. And miscellaneous. Religion and happiness. All cities in the Empire wish to not share the religion in your capital, so you should get minus amenity or minus loyalty. But if you don't have a religion, these negatives would be reduced after you research the Enlightenment Civic or maybe some later Civic, and India's Dharma ability would eliminate the penalty altogether. These penalties might be higher if your civilization actually founded its own religion. Why? Having different religion and historical empires did sometimes cause tensions, and I think this would add a new strategic dimension to religious combat and domination. I, mm, I, I think know. a recent patch already partially implemented this, right? Don't you? Yeah, with loyalty. Loyalty. Yes. Pressure? Yeah, I don't like the amenity aspect. Yeah, I, I'm not so sure about the amenity, but yeah, the loyalty pressure was a good idea, and they put it in the game. So yeah, I don't. I think this is covered. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to see. Like, I don't want to see your own nation getting penalized because you founded a religion like that's nonsense yeah like if somebody else's religion is in your city then sure have them loyalty pressure like now makes sense okay but that, that again this was before that was implemented so okay city states city states with unique improvements should build the that improvement in their cities some city states should also get some unique units uh think of them like the holy roman seas swiss guards the player could then use these units when they levy the military okay that would definitely be cool but the, the city-states with unique improvements should build that improvement in their cities. We've talked about the unique improvements that city-states can build, and I think city-states are just generally smart by not building those things and using their tiles better. Yeah, they're generally crap anyway. Mm. <laughs> but it would be nice if the city-states that have those fort-like improvements from the beginning of the game would actually like use them so they don't get conquered 30 turns into the game. <laughs> that would be kind of nice. Better cheating by the AI. Oh, boy. <sighs> okay. Because the AI is not going to get good anytime soon, let's make it cheat better is the idea. Once the AI researches a relevant tech, gets some unique units for free. How many depends on difficulty. Second, AI gets some free upgrades for its units provided as the relevant resource. Third, AI is able to buy tiles for free in order to place districts. Fourth, AI should get production bonuses for building cultural specific wonders or wonders which are particularly useful, appropriate for that sieve, because uh, we don't already have enough high-difficulty AI beating you to wonders in a way that you can't possibly get them. Fifth, relatedly, the AI should be programmed not to build Petra or uh, Chicken Dinner unless it has enough <laughs> desert. Yes, uh, he actually wrote Chicken Dinner, which I like, so I, I said it. <laughs> that one's fine. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 yeah, last that one, is, one would be good. The last one is just making the AI play better. That's not better cheating. It's just here. Yeah. No. Stop throwing a little bit. Stop being an idiot and building Tetra in the one desert tile city, would you? Well, there's always the argument of they're taking it away from another player who actually would get a strong benefit from it. That's pretty but, shaky, though, because when yeah. you have a free-for-all, in effect, with numerous sieves, 
making such a large investment that will at worst penalize one to two other sibs. Yeah. Still for less of an investment cost than it was to you when you yourself are not getting any benefit is really shaky from a strategic standpoint. Like it's a serviceable heuristic to never do it because the times where it's actually your best move, you're almost never. Yeah. The third one about the AI to buy tiles for free in order to place districts to improve the AI's district placement. We talked about this before on the past of the show. It's like, why did they build the campus here? Why didn't they build it there? Because it wasn't already within their territory. The question is, this is about just being better AI, let alone better cheating by the AI, because it's going to have to recognize... I should get this tile so that I can place this district to get a better adjacency bonus or to get any adjacency bonus at all as compared to what's already in my territory. So I'm not really certain that's better cheating by the AI. That would actually just be better AI. I think the AI already is really bad at spending gold to buy tiles because the AIs a lot of times have the gold to do it and they just don't do it. And even if it was for free... I'm not convinced they're still they're actually going to do it. That that's going to recognize I should get this tile within my border, so I can now build this district because it will get me a better adjacency bonus than anywhere else. Well, if you made it free, you could give the AI the evaluation. Like it just looks at everything that's within the city's range, finds the uh, area with the highest adjacency bonus, and just puts the district there every time, buying tiles for free to get there. It could do that. It could. I'm just wondering if there's still another step required in order to get the AI there. You know, like we've le- we've led the AI to the water, but is this enough to get them to drink? I mean, compared to some other things we're asking of it, particularly in the tactical warfare game, having it pick the area that gives the highest yield for that district type is relatively simple, although it would still result in the occasional mistake. It wouldn't be nearly as bad on average as what we're seeing now. I'm good with the suggestion. I'm just wondering if it goes far enough. And if we only go this uh, far, then well, why? To start, well, why? Uh, like, uh, to make it better, you would have to improve its ability to evaluate situationally better. With this, at least it's a simple implementation, right? You, you pick the highest number and you put it there. And this allows you to put it there always. Like, you're not going to be cost constrained and incapable of putting it there because you can always put it there freely, which is the present constraint on making the AI do this evaluation every time. But does the AI have to outright cheat to do it? I mean, couldn't we just get away with making them better at saying, oh, yeah, I should buy this tile so I can put it there? And even saying if I've got to buy two or three tiles out to get there, then, you know, the answer is maybe because if the AI is evaluating this, it has to then allocate the gold for that versus alternative uses based on context. Yeah, we'd um, have to have an AI that's is, thinking more than just a few turns ahead. Yeah, and that's Does that's a lot more work? challenging than pick largest number X and put this here. So if you're freely buying tiles for it, then there's no context. There's no downside. There's no considerations to be made. It just puts the district there every time. And it doesn't have any like contingent factors beyond its evaluation to put a district down at all that would stop it from doing so. So this is actually one of the ones in this list that doesn't bother me a whole lot, especially because when you conquer these cities, they're not going to be complete. uh, I won't say these words in polite company, but the the district uh, optimization would be a little better. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no I, no argument there. But I have complained often in the past about how I don't like how the highest difficulty levels just stack a bunch of free stuff for the AI right at the start of the game. And I think I would like this implementation of them just getting the tile for the district for free better than them just being given free settlers and free builders. And I agree. Like if you're picking between the two, this is definitely the better. Right. Uh, but if they're going to do AI. that on top of giving them all the other free crap at the very start of the game, then I would say no, I would prefer that if they're going to be given the free crap at the start to play better, then they need to be playing by the dang rules. 
Well, uh, if it starts becoming a more competitive opposition on high difficulties, you can just trip some of the freebie units at the start or whatever, or tone down the production boosts it gets it constantly. Those are certainly options that you could do. So for something like this, which is so much less egregious than just letting them start with multiple settlers, I would much rather see this than that. And there's some good reasons from a programming perspective to take this shortcut. Yeah, and it improves their play over the course of the entire game rather than just, oh, they get a head start and then you catch up and now they're now just crappy AIs again, which is the other problem that I have with the way that the higher difficulty levels work. This one thing in particular is one area where I might also agree that, yeah, the AI is just so abhorrently bad at this that maybe they do need to cheat just to make the programming easier. Well, yeah, the free upgrades or that kind of crap. Uh, I, I don't know. Like so. Yeah, that stuff I'm I'm much more skeptical of. I mean, sure, they might get the upgrades and then you could say, well, what does it really matter? They don't know how to right, yeah, use if, the units, whether or not they have a promotion or not, or they could get unique units for free. And no, they'll still get, you know, raffle stomped because they don't know how to use them. Right. Rather than it being just free on the map, and I understand the scaling of the difficulty level. Maybe what you do, depending upon the difficulty level, is you either make it cost less in terms of hammers, or you give it a production buff. It's like, okay, you want to emphasize this, so, you know, in this particular era, maybe you want to emphasize building this, and the AI ends up choosing building that because it happens to be cheaper. And of course, cheaper doesn't necessarily mean better, but at least they would still have to invest in something rather than, poof, you get something for nothing. Yeah, if it's easy enough to program, if it's not too much extra work to program the AI to just save up the gold for a few turns to buy the tiles, I would much rather see that than them just being able to outright cheat. I would too, but that has a lot of implications. It's harder than it sounds. Right, which is why I prefaced it by saying if it's not too much extra work, because it will be extra work. It's not just a trivial thing. It's not just one more line of code. You don't just get to write if AI not stupid. (laughs) <laughs> play better. A couple of things here. Number one, Phil mentioned polite company earlier. He must have been referring to the audience, not fellow panelists. Um, hey. <laughs> <laughs> and second, clearly all this conversation about better cheating about the AI or improving the AI just means, as we said before, Civilization Seven should be multiplayer only. There you go. <laughs> And lastly, the suggestion, even before Phil reads it, I'm just going to say I'm on board with this one. It's really a return to something that we used to see, but don't see anymore. When you rise the city, you get the barbs. Uh, Uh, Another thing that could be interesting could be if raising the city uh, creates like a refugee kind of thing where it, it sends the population points to other nearby cities that then are like very unhappy or have really low loyalty or something like that. I mean, shoot, even just a capturing a city itself could have a chance for, oh, you've got some people who are resisting there. But def- I would rather not see random partisans back. Thank you. <laughs> it's such a slog. It's one of those things where you need some kind of formula. Size of the city upon capture raised divided by whatever, and that value could scale with difficulty level equals X number of units. Ignore the fractions, or I guess ignore the decimals to be more accurate. What happens is that this turns the what you're fighting into the barbarians rather than the opposing saves. And it just becomes a turn-eating chore to clean all this crap up. It'd be nice if actually those weren't barbarians. Those could actually... It wouldn't be that many units, and you could say that they're not particularly strong or they're not at full strength because, you know, you did just capture or raise the city. But those could be units that then go to the civ that you just captured the city from. Yeah, maybe there could actually be like a special militia or guerrilla unit that's like a crappy compared to contemporary units. But if you're raising too many cities, 
then suddenly there's a huge army of gorillas that are I don't that are controlled the, by the AI or the the losing Civ does not need its hand held more. Defending in Civ is much easier and more advantageous than attacking. Yeah, well, even in Civ Six, I wouldn't want the map to be. Oh, now I've got like half a dozen freaking units covering the map when it's only one unit per tile. But it could spawn like maybe one or two half strength, you know, half injured something or other that, depending upon you know the size of the city, maybe other units that might still be around or in the proximity of the city that you just captured, maybe something and that wouldn't happen all the time. It would be a percentage chance based on things. But just kind of a, a kind of like the last resistance, like okay, you took the city, but uh, you know we live here too and uh, we want it back. I'm not buying that it has enough utility to be worth putting back into the game, especially having experienced it in older sets. Well, part of it could just be an implementation question. No matter how you look at it, though, you're basically giving the defender a little extra. And for what purpose? They're already being given a ton of advantages. Well, if the game were already balanced in such a way that defense wasn't as easy, then it would work a lot better. It might make more sense in such a context, yeah, although I would argue that it would make more sense to have the players have more leverage on defense if the game didn't already have it. But since it does have it, it's tough for me to see justification for this. Yeah, no, I, I'm there with you as well. I don't know about having that back. I mean, I can see how the population going to the other cities part works, but it's the random barbs. If you want to do that in competitive, you'd have the problem of having to turn it off again. Now, the, the pop going randomly to other cities would be, like, that's different. And that yeah. could be functional, for sure. And, and there's no, like, pop- slog factor to that, either. So it's not going to cramp user experience, necessarily. Yeah. Like, there's some considerations you could do with that that would actually be interesting. Right, yeah, like, if especially it just- if it's going to the other cities that you've already captured, and now you've got extra loyalty pressure working against you. But some of it would also go to the cities that the Defender owns. So it's hurting both. Yeah, yeah, because if, if that's the city you decide to raise it's on the border between you and somebody else, then yeah, some's going to come to you and some's going to go to them. And maybe like one unit to reflect the partisans, honestly, but outside of that, don't just not that other. No, not like it was before. No, not like it was before. The city would need to be a substantial enough size to be able to justify. They're really going to be able to muster that many number of people. to. Yeah, and even then you might not want to send out the entirety of the population of the city that just got raised. What are we really modeling here? But okay, fine. <laughs> I'm not going to argue too strongly in this context, but the game doesn't need it. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. Support the ongoing Polycast Patreon campaign. Collective achievements. Personal incentives. Month-to-month commitment. For more information, visit thepolycast.net slash Patreon. Call in today. In North America, 301-637-7659. In Europe, 44-121-288-7659. The only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. Log on to the series' official website at thepolycast.net. Record date assorted. 2018. Civilization 4, 5, and Beyond Earth Sound Clips. Copyright Take 2 Interactive. Door Monster Clip. Copyright Door Monster. Copyright Civilized Communication at civcom.net.